0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey.
1: How's it going, everybody?
0: And we're joined, of course, by both of our special guests returning for this book, starting with Galactic Emperor Jared Livingston.
2: <laughs> oh, yes.
0: <laughs> and Mr. Peter Goble. Peter, thank you for coming back, dude. Yeah, absolutely. What's up? Uh, so, sorry, were you going to say something there? Oh, no. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go on. Sorry, dude. Uh, Today is episode 36, and we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of The Shadow Rising, book four of The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. And just a quick reminder once again, because we have a special guest who hasn't read beyond the end of this book, we're not going to dive into spoilers for the future of the series. We'll pick back up again with that once we continue with book five. But for now, Peter, you're safe with us, my dude. I promise. (laughs) Cool, cool. Without further ado, Drew, give us a recap of what we've just read.
1: Yeah, so last week we left off with Perrin having been ambushed in the two rivers while out hunting Trollocs. And he and the survivors meet up with the Tinkers, uh, with Rayan and Isla and Aram and all of them um, to kind of recuperate, recover. And they end up heading back to Iman's field where. Aram uh, breaks with the Way of the Leaf and takes up a sword. Uh, in response to the Trollic attack, He he's basically done with being a pacifist and he wants to be able to defend himself. And uh, and he kind of starts following Perrin around. And meanwhile, Perrin organizes the two rivers, uh, or at least the Iman's Field area. He has... All the outlying farmers coming into town, they build fortifications, and uh, on the eve of this giant battle, he sends Fa'iel away, and her bargain in order to leave is that he needs to marry her. So they get married, Fa'iel leaves, the Trollocs attack Imon's Field, they're about to overrun uh, the town when Fa'iel shows back up with the Watch Hill men. And at the same time, Devon Ride uh, sends a force up and also uh, attacks the Trollocs from the rear. And, and all, all told there, they overwhelm the Spawn and the Two Rivers is saved. Uh, meanwhile, in Tanchico, uh, Elaine and Nynaeve have figured out You know they're going into the Panarch's Palace. Uh, when they're in there, they, uh, they find the Domination Band they run into Mogedion, and Nynaeve has an awesome showdown with her, uh, <laughs> where where we see her go blow for blow with one of the Forsaken and win, and they get away with one of the Seals of the Dark Ones prison and the Domination Band, and Bale Domon Doman uh, agrees to throw the Domination Band into one of the deepest parts of the ocean, uh, and then our last prong of this sort of trident storyline structure here is Rand and Matt and all the rest in the Aeol Waste. Rand calls a meeting of the Aeol clan chiefs at the Golden Bowl, al and uh, reveals himself as the Karn and Kuladin at the same time, this shadow jerk, also reveals that he has the, uh, the dragons on his arms, and Rand tells his story about going through the glass columns in Rodian. All the clan chiefs and wise ones know who the real Karakarn is because of that. And uh, war breaks out among some of the clans in the Aeel. And to stop it, Rand makes it rain in the Aeel Waste. But he's not done because Lanfear and Asmodian have been hanging around this whole time. And Asmodian has found where... Two extremely powerful <laughs> Sa'angreol, or the access keys to them at least, are located in Rodian And he and Rand have a final showdown there. Rand defeats him with the help of the little fat man, Angreal. Lanfear shows up, shields Esmodian, and leaves him to be a teacher for Rand. And that's about uh, where we leave off at the Sweet. end of Shatterizing. And <laughs> there is a <laughs> lot to happen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes.
0: So, yeah, now before we get into the meat and potatoes of our, you know, our style discussion, our characters' discussion, everything that we normally like to do, before we do that, I still want to get Peter's impression of the end of this book. Peter being our new reader. The end of The Shadow Rising, how did you find it, in, like, in comparison to The Eye of the World, The Great Hunt, and The Dragon Reborn?
2: Um, holy shit. <laughs> a lot, A lot happens at the end of this book, and it's all awesome the uh scene in the desert with uh both Rand and Cooladen proclaiming themselves was amazing and then we we finally figure out who Asmodian is that's that was fun for me and then i uh, i mentioned if you listened to our last podcast that i like Nynaeve a lot and yep. so the scene with with Mogedian was <coughs> one of my one of my favorite scenes um yeah the uh, you asked more specifically how i thought the end of this book compared to the endings of other books yeah and i think that the endings of every wheel of time book that i've read have been super strong they all finish with with a bang so um shadow rising i'll say that i liked the end at least uh better than eye of the world And maybe the most overall, but the last three books have all ended with a bang, so I I don't want to make too big a distinction there. (laughs) Like I (laughs) remember, I I loved the end of The Great Hunt, so... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And
3: and it's all three storylines that end with a bang, too. It's not just one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All three storylines in separate places. It's amazing. And
3: this is kind
1: of a good transition into you know talking about a little bit about Robert Jordan's style in this book Heck and, yeah. and how this is the first in the series that does not have a unifying conclusion. Mm. Um, each of the first three books we see storylines diverge and then converge in time for a grand unified climax. In this book, each of the characters' storylines diverges and stays separate. We don't have a, a big reunion at the end like we've been used to. And that provides for what I think is, is one of the more impressive endings to a book that he was able to juggle all three of these storylines and provide excellent conclusions to all three.
0: Yeah, they were cool. As you were talking about, I'd like that whole trident of different em- different endings, the, the ending that we got for Perrin was hands down my favorite, like, ending for a character, I think, in this whole series. Just if you're talking about contained in a single volume. You know, uh, uh, Nynaeve's whole showdown with Moghetti in there and Tanchico and how the palace was shaking itself. The arrival of the Black Aja with their uh, Tirangreal that creates Balefire. Holy crap. Like, everything was just so awesome. And then, of course, how can you forget the struggle between Randall Thor and Asmodeon over the Shoei Cal, as each of them draws half of what the great Sa Angriel can deliver. We have, we literally have mountains being demolished. We have the entire city of Roydeon just being trashed. You know, like, all these things happening more or less simultaneously, chronologically speaking, across the entirety of the world, it's just, ah, this is why the Shadow Rising might be my favorite Wheel of Time book. It might be. It's, it's, it's tied between this one, I think, and maybe book six, but I'm, I'm starting to think I'm coming down more on the book four side. It was absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, for the longest time, I would I would have said Lord of Chaos is my favorite, but in after recent, or relatively recent, rereads, I, I think Shadow Rising, um, I think it's paced a little better. And it, it has some some real moments of literary brilliance, like the Roydian sequence, that uh, I don't think is there in Lord of Chaos.
3: So. Uh, I think Lord of Chaos is more iconic, but. Yeah. And the end of Shadow Rising is better.
2: Yeah.
3: Okay. Um, yeah, I, I do like uh, the way you
1: described uh, Rob, the. Uh, The duel between Rand and Azmodan, and and how much of the power was being thrown around. Where you're talking about, you know, like the earth is heaving, the 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 city that has stood, you know, undisturbed for thousands of years is is being brought to rubble. Rand, I mean, Rand opens like one end of the valley and creates a giant lake, you know, and (laughs) yeah, and uh, I mean, there are a lot of things like. Ecological changes that Rand uh, creates in the waste at the end of this book, and I think that's a, a really interesting and cool demonstration of his power. Where it's not necessarily a destructive thing, we we get to see Rand do some some really cool, you know, battle weaves and things like that, and you know, the the shadowspawn lightning tornado earlier in this book, and oh, some yeah. of the stuff he does with Kalendor at the end of the last book. You know we, we get to see him do these violent things with the power but now we see him do something that's you know creating rain to stop violence you know and and how he's he has transformed the the dynamic of the IEO waste now there's a lake in the middle yeah. of this desert
0: there's a and Roideon is right like, on the lake like you have a city on the lake now
3: Yeah So I would also mention that he does something Landford didn't think was possible in cutting off Osmodian from Oh yeah dark one
1: yes uh and and uh i'll get into this a little more later on uh i'm gonna touch on some lore points there but yeah i i do love that scene where land is just like you know she shows up and she's just like huh did you really just do that like <laughs> yeah it was pretty cool definitely
0: uh talking more about jordan's style I do want to bring up, uh, once again, and this is something I've mentioned in in a few uh, recent episodes, and I'll say it again. It's his penchant for ceremony that I just find really, really cool. Hmm. Um, And, and of course, in this book, once again, he's utilizing the Aiel as a vehicle for that. Uh, We have the arrival at Cold Rocks and the asking permission to enter the hold. We have the entirety, <clears throat> pardon me, the, the remember honor ceremony with the maidens as they get him really, really drunk on the Uskwai, I think it was. <laughs> uh, you know, it, like, I just, I, I found it really cool and like the Aiel are just such a bad ass people <laughs> that I just, I, I kind of, I kind of wish we had spent even more time in the waste. I really do. What'd you guys think?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, tying back to what we talked about with like the the ceremony, the Borderlander customs that we saw land Teach, Ran, and, Rand, hands, yeah. and uh, 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 the Great Hunt. Yeah, and then and then we see new cultures, ceremonies as we move into the series, and I I like a lot of what you're saying uh, about. The Aiel. And and another thing that really stood out to me was actually the uh, the battle song, the Wash the Spears, you know, oh. that mm. they're all singing as they're pouring down the slope toward El Cardal.
0: The tar died. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so Such cool. a powerful scene. Hold on while I go change my favorite scenes real quick. I'm making an adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Sorry, I mean,
2: the, I appreciate what you brought up there because I think that it would have been really easy as a fantasy writer for Robert Jordan to just say oh they're badass desert ninja warriors and that would have legs (laughs) its own to stand on but he's not lazy like that so he really develops this culture with all these different subtleties that you Mm -hmm. grow to appreciate and it's so much better than if he had just made them badass desert ninja warriors yeah
3: (laughs) yeah and it kind of feeds the whole storyline between rand and avienda with her trying to teach him their ways
2: And how cute are they?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'd call them cute at this point, but I I, I see what you're saying.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Hey, I I love Avienda. She's, She's one of my favorites, so...
0: Uh, she frustrated me in this book. I become more of an Avienda fan later in the series, but in this book, I was again. I was just kind. I was a little frustrated with her just because she's so hell bent on rate on on rating Thor. Oh my God, <laughs> 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 hating Randall Thor.
3: She might be pretty hell bent on that, huh?
0: I like. She, I, just, I don't know. And at this point, we don't know why. We're like, what is your hate boner for this guy? Like, why <laughs> do you just... Everything he does, even the way he like breathes, the way he smiles, it just seems to piss her off. <laughs> I don't know. But like I said, i become a way bigger Avienda, uh, Avienda fan in the future. Yeah. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Um, do we want to jump right into character discussion then? Uh,
0: I do have a couple more style things that I wanted oh. to get out of the way. Alright. Um, I, I wanted to talk about Jordan starting to flex his muscles in the area of... Like, at least I'm starting to notice now in the area of dramatic irony. Like, we have moments where characters act out in a way that makes no sense to the character whose point of view that we're in, but the audience still knows and understands yeah. what, exactly what's going on. For example, in Nynaeve and Elaine's chapters, I forget whose head we were in at that point, we were in Tanchiko. And they're meeting with Aguinan, who they're really coming to the, whose company they're really starting to enjoy. Yeah. When Bael Domon chooses that moment to enter unannounced. Yep. You know, boom, Aguenan flying over the table, throwing punches, trying to kick his ass. Yep. And in all you know, of course, Nynaeve and Egwene, they're like, What the hell are you doing? <laughs> or Egwene, listen to me, Nynaeve and Elaine, they have no idea what's going on. They're like, Ageenan, what are you doing? But we know exactly yeah. why Ageenan's doing that. Right? Yeah. Another example. Nynaeve first meets the wise ones in Teleronriad. And she argues that she's perfectly aware of the danger she's getting herself into. And the wise ones suddenly put, you know, pigtails on her. And to make sure that we get the joke, we specifically see Egwene with a hand over her mouth, fighting not to laugh. Yeah. You know, once again, it's a situation where we're inside the head of someone who doesn't get the joke. But that only seems to make it funnier, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think that's uh, one of kind of the strong suits of robert jordan's writing throughout the series is his ability to create situational humor based on point of view and uh yeah and i will also say that specific scene with uh and bale domon one of my favorite parts about it is that this lasting image that i have of it like where they kind of reach this stalemate but Agine still like manages to like elbow him in the short ribs one last time.
0: <laughs> yeah, and how, how how Domon's apparently like holding his side in a spot where they hadn't really even seen her hit him. Like, yeah, it just must have been that fast. <laughs> I did I did appreciate that quite a bit.
3: I really like him as a minor side character.
0: Yeah, the re- the return of Deus ex Domon. How did we forget to mention yes. that yep. in the last episode? Right. Yep. That was the, literally the first note I had written down for The Shadow Rising Part 3 was, the ret- in all caps, the return of Deus Ex Domon. How did we forget? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the last style thing that I wanted to bring up would be the, like, Jordan's battle scenes, particularly with Golden Eyes, um, like that whole sequence near the end of the book. So we know for a fact that Mr. Jordan was, he was a war vet. He, he served two yeah. tours in Vietnam as a helicopter gunner. Um, we can assume that he's seen some action Yes. And I wanted to offer something that I've I've always noticed about the Golden Eye sequence, um, something that kind of struck me as odd when I was reading it as a teenager, but could just be a bit of like realism that Jordan decided to throw in there to kind of you know offer something about the actual experience of being in battle. And this thing that I've noticed is that things seem to happen before you're ready for them in the battle. Like the battle, for example, the battle seems to be over while somehow. It's, it's still being fought, like, we have the most desperate part of this fight. The Trollocs fighting in among the houses, Perrin's ignoring what might be a broken leg, and he's starting to wonder, why are the women here? Like, why are they fighting? Who's gonna get the children away? What's... And then suddenly, the little messenger appears, and he tells Perrin that Devin Ride has arrived, and they're attacking the Trollocs rear. And and though the battle is still raging, and there's this man screaming, there's, there's Trollocs dying, Parent is like, suddenly he's grinning, and he's ruffling the boy's hair, and then Fahil arrives, and we're kind of celebrating almost before we even know what's happening. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I've always thought that Jordan had a pretty... Well, actually, I wrote down esoteric, but that's not the word I want to use. Eccentric way of, of approaching his battle sequences. Get this repeated idea of battles being hard to gauge in terms of time. You know, he couldn't tell if it took minutes or all day, or even at the beginning of the Wheel of Time, we had Tam saying... In his fever dreams, you know, battles are always hot, even in the snow. Had to get away. Like, how do you guys feel? I guess that's what I'm boiling down to here. I wanted to ask how you guys feel about the style of Robert Jordan's battle sequences.
2: It's
3: certainly effective, and I think it conveys chaos in the right way.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Peter? Oh, sorry, go ahead.
3: (laughs) I would also say one thing that stood out to me here was his ability to describe the battle scene between Nynaeve and Mogedion, you know, and having these two people fighting frantically with the power, and if an outside observer were to look at them, (laughs) wouldn't be able to tell much other than these two women staring at each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that speaks to his talent, being able to describe both kinds of battles. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, so it it is, I think, you know, an important uh, contextual... Bit of information uh, that Robert Jordan was a a war vet and he did see combat. Um, There, there are a couple crazy stories uh, floating around, you know, from various interviews he gave about his time in Vietnam and really, like he, oh my god, he won uh, or was awarded, not won, uh, he was awarded like a medal. I don't remember which which one it was because he was a he was a very decorated man. Uh, He won several medals, but uh he he was given some award for valor uh during his time as a helicopter gunner a uh you know a Viet Cong you know insurgent or, or something yeah, shot the, a <clears throat> the sorry go ahead uh shot uh, an RPG at the helicopter and Robert Jordan shot the the grenade out of the air no way yeah
0: I'm reading right here. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross with Oak Leaf Cluster, the Bronze Star with V in Oak Leaf Cluster, and two Vietnamese Gallantry Crosses with Paul. Yeah. Damn. That's some cool stuff, man. But
1: but yeah, so you, you can really see, I think, how his firsthand experience with war and with death creeps into his writing because he, he does a good job of showing how... The horror of battle can harm people. You know, we we see it with Aram in this book, where oh, yeah, you that know was tough. he clearly has PTSD from from this Trolloc attack, and and completely discards his old life because of it, and takes up a life of violence. You know, and oh, even during the Roedean sequence with um, uh, migraine, uh, migran, I think.
0: Who was uh taken by the, the soldiers, and y- yeah, she was just catatonic afterwards mm-hmm. like the, the, yeah no definitely I, that just struck me
1: yeah and and so he demonstrates really well, I think just what it means to to be courageous in war, you know, with the attack on Iman's field and and the actions of the women you know and and how you know you have these descriptions of like. The teenage girls in there, like taking down a trolloc, like three yep. on one
3: and and Bode things cock like that. and
0: lifted up by her hair, yeah. As, like, her throat was about to be slit. I think it was Alspit Luhan that took that one down, mm-hmm. or maybe uh, Maran. I there. love the
3: imagery of the women fighting
2: alongside the men as well.
0: That was so cool.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. he does a good job giving us the different camera angles we need. If that makes any sense, like we kind of get. It, I'm thinking of Iman's field in particular that we get some of the. Bird's eye view pictures from what's going on with the roof and uh, on the roofs, and the Trollocs approaching, and then we get the close-ups that you were mentioning so well, happening throughout the village. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it's and it's superb, impressive that he manages to give us that without breaking us from the close third-person point of view. Uh, like, we're still in Perrin's head, right? And and it's just the way he lays the battle out that allows Perrin to see and comment on these things. And then because we're in Perrin's point of view, he can play with the suspense of you know the battle elsewhere on other, you know, sides of Iman's field to the point where when this messenger boy, you know, is is running up and and in the midst of all this chaos and and killing We're wondering as readers what is going on here with with the messenger boy and then he comes back and we find out it's Devon Ride they're here and you know and so if he wrote this battle from an omniscient perspective he couldn't use uh, that sort of tension he couldn't build that mystery in the middle of the battle because an omniscient narrator knows the Devon Ride men are there you know whereas (laughs) Per and Ibarra does not so
0: yeah So that that was the end of my uh, style points that I wanted to discuss. You guys want to get into our characters now? Yeah. Heck yes. So obviously we start with Randall Thor. How do you start with anybody else? Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, and I didn't actually believe it or not, despite how much Rand went through and how much he has changed during the course of this book, I really didn't write down a whole lot to discuss on the front of Randall Thor just because I think a lot of it kind of stands on its own. I mean, one thing I did want to bring up was that Rand had a, like, a moment that I enjoyed seeing in, where he was remarkably innocent in, I, and I wrote down almost childlike and it was directly after this Aiel ceremony with remember honor and the maidens getting him drunk and they're tickling him and they're he's giggling as he's getting put to bed and then we're, we're, we're in his head directly afterwards and he's thinking about something that Malayne had almost let slip when when she was uh, he was thinking what was Malayne planning to lay in order to make him know their blood for his how could laying something make him decide he was a eel? and then he thinks lay a trap maybe fool she wouldn't say right out she means to lay a trap what sort of things do you lay and then, you go, and then he thinks hens lay eggs and he starts giggling <laughs> softly and he was just it said he's too tired he too tired for questions now and i just i love how nonsensical and stupid his thought process went there because as he's getting more and more exhausted, we are still seeing glimpses of this wide-eyed, overwhelmed sheepherder from a backwater village in the Two Rivers. I just, I, I, do appreciate these moments, while while we still get them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's cool in this book because so much of Rand's early, uh, you know, character conflict was whether or not he he was going to accept his duty as the Dragon Reborn. The responsibility that he has toward the world as this prophesied figure. And now we see him finally having accepted it. And now he needs to learn how to be a leader. And uh I don't know, it's it's cool to see his his progression going from dealing with the uh, the high lords in tier, where he has to be a very specific type of ruler to keep them in line. And then going to the Aiel, where it is much more built on relationships of mutual respect between the clan chiefs and and the wise ones and things like that. And so Rand is learning different styles of leadership in this book.
0: And different styles of fighting, too. We see him taking sword lessons from Lan, and then we see him getting taught the spear by Ruark. That was a really cool scene, wasn't it?
1: And and learning how to fight hand-to-hand as well with both Ruark and Lan.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so cool.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. Anything
0: else? Randall Thor?
1: I just really liked Rand's uh, character progression in this book uh, the most out of any of the four so far. uh, I think by a long shot. I like Rand, for the most part, through the first three books. But it's really in The Shadow Rising that he becomes one of my favorite characters.
2: Mm, Agreed. I would agree that he grew on me quite a bit in The Shadow Rising. I like in this part of the book the way he kind of flirts with Avienda, even even though she's always glowering at him. Um, I guess uh, I feel like we see it more in this part of the book that Rand is so bad at politics that he's almost good. Yeah. It's kind of like... (laughs) A poker player who doesn't know the rules and is kicking your ass, like, yeah. <laughs> when he's talking about what he experienced in Roydian which is, you know, a total no-no, but that's oh, how such a the clan chiefs knew yeah. who, who it was. Wo- I mean, one of my favorite lines in this whole book, maybe my favorite line in the series so far is the, uh, from Ruark, Rand is the Karakarn and the light help us all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's the truth. Oh. Well, it's it's funny you brought that up, Peter. In, in our Great Hunt episodes, we talked a little bit about that, that same phenomenon uh, at Barthanes's manor, when Rand is so insistent on you know not playing the game of houses that he inadvertently is like an expert yeah. at the game of the houses. <laughs> yeah. Even
0: Barthanes is left like, I have no idea you were so deep in the great game. Oh, yeah. He to think about <laughs> <laughs>
3: It almost makes you sympathize with the wise ones rolling their eyes at him. (laughs) Oh,
0: and a lot of blatantly, I sympathize with the wise ones on several times throughout the course of this book.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, On the topic of the wise ones, I just want to throw a quick shout out to Siana, the unsung hero of the Dreamwalkers. Yes. She, I mean, we only meet her for a little bit before she's, uh, you know, taken down by a drag car, which is like Mm -hmm. one of the worst ways to go. But Mm -hmm. I liked her. She was fun. It's... Yeah, uh, uh can I have a I have a confession to make about
0: Siana. I actually totally forgot she was a person. I thought yeah. I swear to god, this whole time I thought like the, the fourth of the wise ones that they meet there at Chayandere was Soralia huh, For the yeah. longest time I assumed it was Soralia. So when I was going back to the uh the audiobook, I kept hearing Siyana Siyana and I was like, Who the heck is Siana? So I went and read it <laughs> up and I was like, Oh, I forgot about her.
1: Yeah, that's my point. Like Everybody thinks of, you know, when you when you say wise ones, you think of Bear, Amise, Malene, and Soralia. Yeah. You don't think of Siana, but she is there and she's important in this book. She
0: definitely is. <laughs> yeah, she was. Uh, crap. She, she's, she was one who had spoken directly to Kuladin, and like, I think she was one that straight up said, "I would deny you the, the chance to go in." Yeah. To Roydian. Mm-hmm. You no, know? like she she had she was definitely a vital player in this book and she's just obviously coming from me like I just admitted she's just so criminally unknown yeah
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so I yeah that's pretty much everything I wanted about Randolph Thor anything else
3: yeah I have nothing else to really add about Rand let's move to Perrin Perrin ah, and Faidil, there's a lot to talk about here <laughs> cause
0: I actually have less to talk well less to oh. bitch about
1: I'll, well, I'll well, honest. the uh, the the ring is on the finger, the uh, uh-huh. the collar is around the neck, so to speak.
2: Yeah, when I was reading through this, I took a picture of the page where that happens and sent it to Drew and said, "R.I.P. Perrin." <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's... No, like. I had a lot to complain about on the Perrin front during our first episodes in this book. And, and now I'm really starting to dig, like, this part of the story. You know, Perrin himself, I will say, is still kind of infuriatingly stubborn. He's rude to the Aes Sedai. He's completely unwilling to take charge. And, I mean, he's just so incredibly, like, willfully ignorant of his own physical limitations when, like, for example, trying to get out of bed when he can't even stand to go fight Trollocs. Yeah, like uh, he still has a beautiful journey in this book. Do not get me wrong, and it's great. It was absolutely awesome to see Emmonsfield get the help that we want it to get. It was awesome, but uh, mm, Perrin was just like, "I'm just like, dude, come on, sleep for like an hour. Just do it. Listen to your wife." I-, I can't believe like throughout the first two episodes in this book, part one and part two, I was bitching about Fail. for almost the entirety of this third part. I was rooting for Fael. I was like, "Oh my god." This poor chick. Like, per- just listen <laughs> to your wife, Perrin. Oh my God. How about you guys?
1: Yeah, I I like Fail mostly in the last third of the book here. Um. And and like I said on earlier episodes, I have a a different perspective on her overall. Knowing that she was originally written as a 15 year old girl, you know, like it, it becomes a lot harder for me to judge her as harshly as I might have. And when taken into context of her age, she's actually quite savvy and mature in a lot of ways, especially with, with how she savvy. handles yeah. Perrin in in the later parts of this book. So,
0: yeah, I it's taking a lot of sorry. Go ahead, Peter.
2: Oh, I I didn't love the way she leverages the marriage though. Yeah, that is that is fair. I would have rather would... that just happen out of love than out of you know something like that. Yeah.
0: I was deciding on whether or not I wanted to write down a point about that. I'm glad you brought it up. I decided not to write a point about it, but I thank you for bringing that up because I was a little kind of off put, I guess I'll say, by that. The fact that she just used it as, oh, okay, you want me to go. I'll agree to doing that if you marry me. Like, obviously, he's going to agree to that because he wants, like, she's just using his, like, unrivaled, unquestionable love for her to get that ring on her finger or that ribbon on his neck, or whatever, however they do <laughs> in the two rivers.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. Jared, and I want ultimately
3: to hear, the, all.
1: Yeah. I want to hear Jared's well, opinion here on Perrin, because Perrin's your favorite character, right?
3: Perrin is my favorite character. Um, what I loved about the most about this sequence is all the little scenes where he is trying not to be a leader <laughs> and ends up being a leader. Like, when all these people are coming to him with all of these different issues, and he's like thinking, why can't these people handle it? Why can't they go to the mayor? And he just kind of falls into it by default. It kind of reminds me of Matt sometimes, where he's trying not to be a hero and falls into it.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's that Tavirin, you know, at work with Perrin. The pattern kind of um, weaving him into
3: a leadership role. I'm really interested in his relationship with Arim as well, and how he now feels responsible for him in a way. Yeah, yeah. Which he should.
1: I mean, I don't know if I don't know if I fully agree with that. I mean, Arm does make his own choice. You know, it's not. Yeah. Like I, I scary. see, I see where that mentality comes from because it is Perrin's, um, influence. His repeated influence on that particular, uh, you know, caravan of the traveling people that gives Aram the like the social context for making a decision to abandon the way of the leaf. It's seeing Perrin's innate violence that drives him toward it. Um, but but I I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of saying. Aram is Perrin's
0: responsibility uh no I, I think I would I would I think that Aram for more or less is Perrin's responsibility because I mean Perrin had already repeatedly been driving home that idea into you know Aram's head again and again previously before he even lost you know his whole caravan you know or his family members that like hey the way of the leaf is not going to save you you know the trial it's not going to save you from the Trollocs and it's not going to save you in life like the the failure of the way of the leaf kind of left aram just like stranded you know completely at sea he was just helpless there he, as you said like as we saw he was catatonic and and I guess Perrin's whole way of life is is uh, you know doing violence and and picking up arms to protect your loved ones you know that was kind of the only shore that that Aram could see at that point—that's obviously where he swam to. But I, I do think that Perrin really has a lot to consider, and he has a lot of responsibility in the way of Aram because of how v- you know vehemently he had been driving that point.
3: Know, what I, about what about the scene with—I'm uh, spacing on the name Isla, I think uh, I love, it is. Yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when she is basic, when she's devastated, coming down the stairs, seeing Aram holding a sword, and Perrin oh. basically tells her to deal with it. Yeah, that was tough. I mean... I, I'm not saying it's the wrong decision, but he's certainly responsible.
1: Like, I just... I, I'm a little uncomfortable tells- with that, because that, that takes away Aram's agency. Like, Aram is his no. own man. Like, by, by right. saying that Perrin is responsible for, for Aram's decisions, like, no. Aram makes his own decisions. Maybe he drew inspiration take, from Perrin, or he sees Perrin as a you know, uh, like a model to shape his life after. But that doesn't that doesn't mean it's Perrin's responsibility.
0: Take this sword. Go to Tamal Thor. Tell him that I asked him to train you.
1: Well, sure. Perrin ends up taking some responsibility because yeah, that's just that's the right. kind of person Perrin is. But I don't think, like, I, I don't think the idea that. Like, like, there's a difference between Perrin saying "I will step in and help you," and saying "Perrin must step in and help him." Like,
2: like saying That's he fair. is
1: Perrin's responsibility versus Perrin offering, you know, his help.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Drew. I think just because um, Perrin influenced uh, Aram's beliefs, that doesn't necessarily make Aram his responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, before like, the
2: fact or after the fact. After the fact,
1: yeah, I mean, Aram is still his own person. He can still make his own decisions and yeah, he can. yeah, I mean yeah, so I don't know and and I I will say like I have always had kind of like a weird like, I, I didn't love how Aram and Perrin interact with each other even from the very beginning in eye of the world. Uh, there was always something in that dynamic that bothered me. Uh, and, and I think that's exacerbated in this when Aram picks up the sword uh, so and, and I can't really explain what it is about it, it just that <laughs> there's something there that always bothered
2: me I agree okay. with that again <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember uh, feeling tension between the two of them in Eye of the World and you know, and it, at at that point, it it was almost more like they felt like rivals, and there's a bit of a different dynamic here. But yeah. there's there's still something uncomfortable about the way that they communicate. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. But before we get off of Perrin, I do want to bring up loyal, since he's right there with Perrin in his whole, uh, you know, uh, his sure. his, his, whole, his whole journey there in the, in the two rivers. I wanted to say how much I loved. The scene where Loyal is returning to Emmons Field and he's carrying Gall and he's running through the woods. Yeah. And everybody is everyone sees him and they're all shouting his name and they're smiling and they're egging him on. We have Perrin laughing, saying, "Run, Loyal, run!" You know, the, the knowledge that Loyal has been carrying Gall for literally days at this point. I just ah, uh, I love that big old teddy bear. <laughs> An outpacing
3: trucks. Yeah.
0: yeah. What a nice moment. I wrote down so bloody wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean How that that
1: guess? describes Loyal pretty much, to a T, <laughs> is wholesome.
0: Yeah, wholesome. <laughs> I I really loved that that scene that we got where Perrin is trying to send Faiul away from the Two Rivers before it falls, and he he's going under the he's trying to send her away under the false pretense of gathering aid from Cainlin or Spain yeah, to yeah. the Queen, whatever. Loyal enters and he asks her to take his book, and which which totally fucks up Perrin when he says, "You should fly free, Faiul." You, she should fly free, Perrin. And Perrin is just like, oh, Loyal, you've got to be shitting me right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And then, then I, I did also want to say, Loyal, Perrin, Loyal might not be the most oblivious person in this scene here. Yep. You know? Yep. Faiyog is clearly on to Perrin. She's so clearly on to what he's doing. Oh, he's just yeah.
1: Like, Ooh, I mean, his whole, really well. his whole, like, explanation it has so <laughs> many holes in it where he's like, oh, we we can hold out for Tons more time. It's fine. Like, yeah. but but we just we just can't quite <laughs> handle finishing them all up. So we're gonna need some help from from Came One. It's like the logic there makes no sense. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh, He's tired else? and desperate.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, uh, sticking with Perrin and and Perrin ancillary characters. Uh, oh. We haven't really talked much about Slayer.
0: No, we have not. In fact, I had not even written him down to talk about. Holy crap.
1: What did you want to say about Slayer? Well, uh, the, the biggest thing in, in the last part of this book is the implication. I'm not going to say the outright confirmation, but the implication that Lord Luke was somehow Slayer. You know, where mm-hmm. Perrin, Perrin defeats Slayer in the World of Dreams... And then Lord Luke, you know, comes bursting out of his rooms and runs from the inn, you know, with a, a chest wound in the same place that Perrin got Slayer. And, uh... It, it gives us a... Uh, another piece to the puzzle, and this is tying back to the Great Hunt uh, with the Dark Prophecy there. And... uh and that, that quote in the Dark Prophecy, you know, uh, Luke came to the mountains of doom, Sam waited in the high passes. You know, one did live and one did die, but both are. You know, and, and we see now Lord Luke here tied to this idea of Slayer, an evil, clearly shadow, some sort of dark friend. And then again, when the Trollocs are attacking Emon's field, they chant the name Isam. 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 And yeah. it's tying these little pieces back together to that dark prophecy that we found on the wall in Faldara. So we know And doesn't
3: doesn't Varen make particular note of it as well.
1: Uh yeah, Varen Varen says I think she just <laughs> murmurs "Interesting" when they <laughs> and pulls out her notebook. Typical Varen. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it, the line is just "Interesting," Varen murmured.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, in Perrin's head, he thought, "Well, interesting isn't the word that I would use to describe that, but okay." Yeah, yeah. You know? well, I guess we'll go with that.
1: <laughs> oh, but but I, I I did want to bring that up with with Slayer because he's a a new player in the Shadow Rising, but the groundwork was laid out for him clear back in the Great Hunt. So. Yep. Yeah. And this, and this just goes to show a little more, uh, you know, Rob, we, we talked with Craig from the Legendarium on our Dragon Reborn episodes about, we did. about uh, the initial plan for the Wheel of Time. <laughs> the idea of, mm. you know, it was originally planned as a trilogy and the question arose of, well, was that original trilogy just the Eye of the World, the Great Hunt, and the Dragon Reborn and that was where he was going to end it? Or was it something more than that? And and this ISAM point here, I think, uh, is is a little bit of supporting evidence on uh, for my theory that his trilogy was going to end with A Memory of Light. He just, you know, ended up having, like, seven books of content for
2: each <laughs> book, you know,
1: um, because... It would make no sense to have that dark prophecy in The Great Hunt with things about Isam when Isam doesn't even appear until book four. Right? And, and there are so many little tidbits from Min's viewings, for instance. Yeah. That, and
0: that's one. Yeah. You know, they, so they don't even
1: get touched on in the first three books. So it, it would have made no sense for him to write those into Eye of the World if he never intended to even address them again.
0: Yeah, and something you had said during our Great Hunt episodes, now that I'm uh, recalling it, is that pretty much everything during that Dark Prophecy did get addressed in the Great Hunt, with the exception of Luke and Isom.
1: And, 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 and I think there was one more thing death, uh, the Summer Burn, right? Yep, and Summer Shall Burn, yeah.
0: Yeah, Summer Shall Burn, yeah. Um, yeah, I, can, I mean, I might be uh, persuaded to uh, get on board with that ideology.
3: So, okay. As uh, um, for minor characters, don't forget about Ordeath feeling cheated
0: uh, oh. yeah
1: <laughs> Oh, every everything that about guy. everything about the white cloaks and the people involved with the white cloaks in this book is just so infuriating mm-hmm. like friggin Dane Bornhold and Jarrett Bayar like oh. Or deeth and then we have Jaikum Karadin and Tanchiko yep everything oh and, and we have our first official uh, linking tying Jakeem Carradine back to the name Bors. He's addressed yeah, as Bors. With, yeah, uh,
0: Leandrin shows up and addresses
1: him. Uh, yeah, and interestingly, Bors. so in that scene, there is something that like makes uh, the logistics of the Dark Friend Social tough to grapple with. Because oh, okay. while the Dark Friend Social happened in the Great Hunt, like in the timeline, Leandrin was with Swan Sanchez, you know, uh cohort traveling north from Tarvalon. She doesn't know how to travel, and she couldn't have traveled anyway, because they were on a boat. Um how did Leandrin get to the Dark Friend Social? We know we know there was like a physical location. I'm telling you, man, I think that was happening in a dream shard. No, because Ingtar had to leave Faldara for weeks to go on a hunt so he could go off to the dark friend social
0: maybe he was already on a hunt and he just happened to get summoned to uh, the dark friend social at the same time
3: and the other thing it is depends that depends on the exact timing of timing know of the social that
0: Balzaman loves to visit his subjects in their dreams he loves to do that uh
1: yes but that was so and i and ha uh, Without spoiling anything big, there there are other details in A Memory of Light specifically that point to that Dark Friend Social happening in a real place. And one of them is the Zomara. those The Shadow Spawn okay. Servants. They're the Servants? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it, it, it might just be one of these things we have to write off as like, well, Robert Jordan didn't quite have everything fully fleshed Perhaps. out. At that I mean, early juncture, but... It, it, yeah, it's we strange. We
0: also have to consider the possibility that maybe she had... Uh, she knew him as Bors before that Dark Friend Social, and she wasn't at the Dark Friend well, Social. Well,
1: she was, because she she specifically tells him, like, do you remember a meeting where Balsamon showed us... Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. You know. These these images,
0: yeah. Okay, so, fair enough.
1: Yeah. I don't know, j- More just characters. A, Like a weird lore conundrum that I I don't really know what to do with.
3: (laughs) Um,
1: But yeah, uh, as far as other characters, we haven't touched really on uh, Elaine and Nynaeve much here. Yeah. I want to just kick off by saying Nynaeve's uh, awesome, and she's so cool, and such a badass. She A, beat one of the Forsaken heads up. No, you know no surprise no ambush like that was just straight up like head to head one power strength versus one power strength and she won and a then yeah and even better than that earlier in the book she straight up threw off compulsion wait wait halt wait she, she, she defeated f- Muggleton's compulsion Well she didn't yeah she did. because because Magedian, like tells her you will forget this and she over overrides that compulsion, and she remembers her. She naive struggles with it at a couple of points where she's like, "Oh, okay." And You're
0: right, but then again, it was it was Mogedian's face that triggered that memory in the first place.
1: Uh, so but she if had you can't been see
0: Mulgedion's face. She would, maybe, might not have ever remembered that.
1: Uh, yeah, but that's still like. She still defeated the weave.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it's not it's no less impressive. <laughs> well, I mean the Mul- uh, like, are you are you? me facing down Mogedian the forsaken head to head in a throwdown like that well, well, she, no, I'm, she I'm talking drags. about the compulsion awesome. weave she, and the fact she that she overcame the, the compulsion. compulsion yeah
2: and, yeah. and there so, were
0: residual traces of a compulsion that Mogedian tried to use on her as soon as they started fighting mm-hmm. Right, like the first weave that Mogedian strikes out lashes out at Nynaeve with is compulsion. And yeah. you know, I think Nynaeve manages to slice that weave out of the air, but there's still that residual effect, those residual kind of ghosts of feelings of worship and devotion. Yep. You know, like that's a dangerous, deadly weave and it is impressive to 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 counter it in any form.
1: Yeah, and, and that just goes to show like what kind of inner strength Nynaeve has. Oh yeah. So Yeah. yeah
0: no, I, I got I w- the sense didn't, didn't wasn't
3: you? she like weren't there hints that she was fighting off the original compulsion. Yes, there were. Like as it happened, she was struggling with it. Yeah.
0: Well, you mean immediately afterwards, when they're kind of like, yeah. "Wait, what just happened? Why is my memory kind of?" What's? What, she was a nice lady. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was mm-hmm. very polite, wasn't she? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, and it, yeah, and yeah, it was, like it just seemed there are little there are little tidbits here and there after that too.
0: Oh yeah. But I, I just—I
3: remembered her struggling with her braid Nineveh, and whatnot while the compulsion was happening. Oh, uh,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I was really pumped for Ninety when she faced down Mogadian and she actually won. You know, but just one thing I will say about that scene where she actually beat. Mogadian in in combat, I really wish Nynaeve had been paying more attention to Mogadian's attempt at distraction which I I fully realize how that sounds I wish Nynaeve had fallen for the distraction okay, I get it but Mogadian was just saying so many interesting things (laughs) you know, she starts talking about her time the Age of Legends as they call it now
3: she almost mentioned planets
0: Yeah, exactly. She's throwing reveal after reveal after reveal in Nynaeve's face. And what I I wrote down here, Jared, I almost lost it at travel to other worlds, even in the sky. Did you know that the stars are, and then ellipses. And I was just like, more, more, I want more of this. (laughs) Nynaeve, of course, Nynaeve has to think, okay, I'm not falling for this. I'm not falling for this. And I I can see why it was awesome to see her kind of distract Mogedion, toss that thing at her. Kind of hit her with right between the eyes with a domination band, right?
2: Yeah.
0: Awesome, <laughs> Re- really cool, really cool way to like to kind of humble this this kind of mythical, legendary person with just something so simple. It's like, okay, we're we're fighting with the one power. We are hu- We are insanely power, like strong. The, sh- the palace is shaking, but of course, Mulgadian takes it for granted. She th- she sees herself above everything. And something so simple. As being struck between the eyes by something that Nynaeve threw. Oh, I just love how that was her downfall. That hubris, I just, it was perfect. It was very quaint. I want to say, well done, Mr. Jordan. And how I'll about uh, Mogedian's
3: <laughs> transformation afterwards, and we see just how much of a coward she really is? <laughs> yep. Starts licking her lips.
0: If, if, if you set me free, we, we can come to an arrangement. Shut the fuck up! What are you saying? <laughs> What do you honestly think is gonna fall for that? I mean,
2: just the fact that Mogedian engaged Nineveh in battle tells you how much of an underdog she really was. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was yeah. so cool. I mean, it, it does also tell you just how strong Nineveh can be. Yep. Because mm. even the weakest of the Forsaken is orders of magnitude stronger than any living eyes to die today. Yeah. And I
0: don't think Mogedian is the weakest of the Forsaken. Uh, she is, yeah. She is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ah. Oh. And Nynaeve, at this point, is still kind of growing into her strength, or has she Correct. achieved
1: it fully? Nynaeve probably she's does She's a wilder, not... right?
0: So she's got a lot of experience, arguably. Uh,
1: Nynaeve does not her. reach her potential probably until
2: book 9 or book 10. I would have thought cool. I would have thought Bilal was the weakest of the Forsaken, but I guess he just got screwed. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah no, Bilal uh,
0: is, is one who I never really considered, almost, when I'm thinking about... But Bilal and Balfamel, they're just so wiped aside so quickly that I don't really take it seriously. Like,
2: Bilal, I called Bilal. Like, he was just in and out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure, uh, Asmodian was the weakest of the men. Okay. Um... One power... Oh, he
0: was. Asmodian was the weakest of the men.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to, uh, pull up just, like, the quick little chart here. Um... Actually, no. According to the Companion, Belal is the weakest of the men. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Balthamel, really? Asmodian, and Taim are listed as plus plus three, and Belal is plus plus four. Then Aganor, ah, Demandred, Samael, Logan are plus plus two, and then Rand, Morden, and Robin are all plus plus one.
0: Yeah. And I was really surprised to find out that recently, Semirog was... <laughs> One of the strongest of the females. Uh, I didn't she- realize that Semirog was on a level with Lanfear. I was like, holy crap!
1: Yeah, uh, Lanfear, Olivia, and Semmeridge are are all uh, plus 12, or, or rank 1 for women. That's crazy. Yep. Anyway,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> we haven't had a chance to discuss uh, Elaine. Now, I didn't really write down anything Elaine uh, concerning, but... Did you guys have anything about Elaine that you wanted to get out of the way? I did think it was pretty cool how she saved the Panark. Yeah. Know, mm-hmm. she just kind of, uh, Tamila, I think it was Tamila, who was, you know, had her captured and had her at her mercy. Yeah. And she just came in and just mopped the floor with <laughs> yeah. Tamila.
1: <the to> <laughs> uh, yeah. There isn't a whole ton, uh, with Elaine in the back half of this book, um, I think most of the interesting character stuff happens uh on board the Seafolk ship and then when they first get to Tanchico, like when she uh gets a little a little sloppy drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but you know I I like Elaine. I, I this is one of my favorite books for her uh between yeah, she was competent in this book Between girl. her her dealings uh with Nynaeve and Tanchico and her time with Rand and the Stone. Uh, I, I I liked Elaine in this book quite a lot.
3: She was pleasant.
1: Yeah. Yep. And and this is really before um, Elaine's radius of suck really comes into uh, into play. Yeah, what you had mentioned so, you had
0: teased earlier.
1: Yeah, that that really doesn't start happening till uh, a little later in the <laughs> series. But uh, for now, you know, everybody around her is pretty cool. So you can't really complain too much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Peter, uh, Elaine, anything you want to uh, discuss?
2: I mean, along with her saving the Panarch, I was very much amused by that whole situation that, you know, the, the torture that the Panarch was going through and Elaine's kind of compassion that I think somewhat stems from being somebody who's in a royal family... Yeah. Seeing, seeing somebody disgraced that way, but uh, some of the things that uh, Tamale was that it was doing to the Panarch was like, holy crap! Like the forcing her to eat hot peppers and yeah, yeah, so, uh,
1: Rob, yeah. So Rob, how did you pronounce her name? The Ooh, the black sister there. Uh, Tamila. Tamila. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I always said Tamale. T e m a i. Yeah.
0: 99% of the names I pronounce, I'm going to be going off of the audiobook pronunciation because yeah. that's how I consume the books in preparation for the podcast. Because I weld for like 60 hours a week, so I'm just listening to the audiobook for the vast majority of it.
2: Fair enough. I
3: always thought Tamale because it amused me to say it that way. Tamale.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, and I also want to give a, a really quick nod to Mr. Jordan once again for that excellent bit of foreshadowing. Because believe, like if you remember, Ny- I think it was Nynaeve that had heard that... Uh, Uh, it was, uh, damn it. We got, it might not have been 90, but we got some sort of hint earlier that someone had heard somebody singing raucous sailor songs.
1: Yep. Coming from the Panarchs apartments,
0: coming (laughs) from the Panarchs apartments. And it was so just dismissed out of hand. Like, okay, well that's ridiculous, but (laughs) it turned out to be very, very important. Didn't it? I love how, how deft Robert Jordan was. Is I just, planting certain seeds <laughs> what is he's, it like it's just he's a master
2: i have loved a hundred sailors or oh
0: the
1: actual yeah bro. yeah oh man it's
0: <laughs> the actual song was it was pretty good well done uh, dude i guess
1: <laughs> yeah because it was like um there was a couple oh, different oh songs. yeah there oh, yeah. well so the two the two quotes right here are My breasts are round and my hips are too. I can flatten a whole ship's crew. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, flatten a whole ship's crew made me go...
0: Damn! (laughs) Explicit. Yeah. My goodness, Mr. Jordan. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: Yep, yep. So, uh...
0: The only other character points I have to, do to uh, go over are uh, one really quick with Kuladin, and let me see here. Oh, and Egwene. We haven't discussed Egwene
1: yet. We have not discussed Egwene, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I didn't find Egwene like, too difficult to stomach in this book, only because I, th- I think I know how hard the wise ones are kind of working her. Um, I don't understand why she feels the need to keep up these false uh, pretenses as an Aes Sedai of the Green Aja. Particularly in front of Moiraine, but I guess Moiraine just doesn't care for some reason. Yeah. Um, How'd you guys find
1: Egwene? I'm, I'm going to mostly hold off on talking about, about her in this book, because a lot of the things that I'd want to discuss are um, explored further in theme in the next book and I think that's a better place for me to address them Uh, but I will say I am I am here is where like my frustrations begin with her for the most part it's it's here where some of her some of her tendencies that I don't like as much that bother me start popping up Um, and a a big part of that is how she treats the wise ones uh, tutelage and how how she betrays their trust by going behind their backs and to tell her on Um Okay. And and like I said, I'll I'll talk about that more in the next book. But
2: well, because she's special. Yeah, but uh, I, I, I I don't know I don't really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> I don't get the impression that Moiraine doesn't care. It was I I got more of the impression of like the whatever i'll let you dig your own grave yeah yeah
1: i think that's where moiraine was going with that oh that's a good point because you know what uh,
0: that's true because i was always wondering why moiraine would let her get away with that but if moiraine had any inkling as to g and how the wise ones would treat eventually the revelation of that dishonesty you know what you're absolutely right Peter, you might have just changed that mind <laughs> for me. Maureen was probably just letting her dig her own grave. Yeah, oh, I think she was oh, laying low enough with that. For that. <laughs> oh, that's such a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, uh,
3: yeah. Yeah, I don't have much to add on Aguin. Okay. Does anybody have any points on Matt?
0: Okay, so I was I was wondering whether or not to bring up Matt because I didn't write down anything for Matt, but at this point, that oh, was about ten minutes ago. I realized we hadn't discussed him yet, and I was like. <gasps> Oh, should I say something? But I decided not to. It's <laughs> what about you guys? Do you have anything about Matt that you wanted to discuss?
1: Matt's I mean, I loved Matt, Matt's role in this book is so different. It's like almost more of a reversion. Because uh, while we do still get some points of view from him, and there's a little bit of character development, it's nothing like it was in The Dragon Reborn, where Matt is a focal character in the book. In Shadow Rising now, he's kind of back in Rand's shadow... And doesn't have a whole ton of agency. Doesn't make many choices for himself, especially after Roydian He's just kind of tagging along. Um, yeah. We still get some, you know, some fun scenes with him. Of course, we get to, you know, see his luck at play, and and you know the the acquiring the hat and things like that. Um, I figured you'd want to discuss the shit out of Matt in this episode or because there are so many things that
0: happen to Matt in this book that become important later but then again I could—I suppose we might not want to well, discuss those again most re- of those
1: uh, things happened earlier in the books where we talked about them on the first and second episodes you know like Matt true. going through true. the redstone doorways and, and being hanged and things like that in, in this part of the book Matt's just kind of there
3: damn
1: Um. His his job at the end of this book is to flip a coin a couple of times and then have it slip out of his fingers and roll down the slope of Cair Doll and, you know. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, that that um, reminds me. There was something that I wanted to bring up with regards okay. to Cair Doll and the um, way Rand makes water at the end there. And that was... So one of my sm- favorite small moments from the end of this book is when everyone... It's either when they meet at Cold Rocks Hold or El but I think it's El when the chieftains get together, and one of the old chieftains, like, in spite of the, again, cataclysmic events that are unfolding, he wants to talk about water. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like.
1: (laughs) I think that was on. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I, I do like that. He's like, well, we're all here. We might as well talk about water.
0: Yeah. Yeah. On that. On that exact subject, this is one of my miscellaneous thoughts, because I have a whole page of miscellaneous thoughts that I still want to bring up, slash questions for Drew, that don't have to do with spoilers, don't worry. (laughs) But this is exactly one of my miscellaneous thoughts. Ruark says to Rand, in chapter 57, he says, if two Aiel from different clans meet, they discuss water. And I thought, okay. Okay, I would love to see that actually take place somewhere, mm-hmm. somehow. Could you imagine it? Here's the scene. I'm gonna set the scene for you. We have Aiel one and Aiel two, and Aiel one says, "So, water. That stuff's pretty good, eh?" And Aiel two goes, "Oh, fuck yeah, bro. That shit's the best." And then Aiel one says, "I know, man. It's like it's so wet and stuff." And then in walks Aiel man number three, who looks at the first two and he says, "So, how about grazing?" That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Because that's what 3 IEL will talk about when they get together. It's water and grazing. I just, I I love the the thought of that, of that that actually happening. How much is there to discuss about water?
2: Oh, there is tons. Uh, I'm
0: sure they can find a lot to talk about discussing water. Take it away, Peter. (laughs) Have you been to Cold Rocks? Oh my God, it's so good over there.
2: In uh, Western like, Colorado, which in some ways is like the, or I mean not Western Colorado, but the Western U.S. in general, including Western Colorado. I forgot that you guys <laughs> actually have a water culture. Arizona, there. yeah, it, which yeah, Arizona, <laughs> which in, in some ways is like the IEO waste, but not entirely. Uh, water politics is a huge issue, and water rights and water lawyers. Oh man, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Water rights can be. What? In- incredibly valuable. Oh, yeah. Well, because, like, in the East U.S. and a lot of Canada, there's just plenty of water. So. Dude, I'm in the middle
0: of the Great Lakes. I can't walk yeah. five minutes without coming into water.
2: Like, where, where Jared lives, there's over a million people, and it's naturally a desert. There oh, shouldn't yeah, be water. Silly. But because of the way we've tamed the Colorado River everybody is fighting over that water and you're you're a wetlander you're in the in the area yeah, i'm a wetlander the water is, is pl- I'm more than a wetlander <laughs> um oh. yeah. i'm
0: like the fucking sea folk over here dude
2: i mean i <laughs> like I, i'm in no way as badass as an Iel, but i've always kind of identified with them because they're like I, I i live in a semi-arid area and I'm just like a, a trail runner in the desert a lot of the time. So, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: oh man, that was answered for me.
0: <laughs> uh, well,
2: so uh,
1: slightly tangential there. Uh, as far as Al goes, um, you know the the translation is the Golden Bowl, and it's it's yeah. this uh, acoustically perfect, you know, uh, amphitheater. Yes. Yes, and I have always wondered if Robert Jordan knew about Red Rocks in Colorado and mm-hmm. if he had any inspiration from from that venue.
2: But it definitely oh. made me think of Red Rocks.
1: Yeah,
0: that wasn't where I thought you were going with that. Red Rocks is supposedly.
1: Yeah, look I up thought that was in
0: Texas. No, look up Red oh, Rocks no, round Amphitheater rock. in Round Rock. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: Red <laughs> Red, Red Rocks, Rocks Amphitheater yeah. in Morrison, Colorado. It's one of the most gorgeous music venues in the world. I mean, it's it's in, insane. <laughs> cool. So, uh yeah, I, I've do. I've always wondered about that and, and of course I'll probably never get an answer, but that's <laughs> that's kind of my headcanon is that Elcare Doll
2: is inspired by Red Rocks. Yeah, like when you look up lists of uh best places to see a concert in the US, Red Rocks is usually number one if not the Gorge.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's either the Gorge or Red Rocks, yep. yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Gotta check this out now. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be listening to this file later, and I'm gonna be like, "Oh, writing that down on my phone to check out." Yeah. <laughs> uh, any other characters? I, I, I really briefly wanted to touch on Kuladin. Yeah, go for it. Um, I wanted to say that he, he always bothered me, and I just—I think it's just now where I actually figured out why, and it's because he's pretty much just a stereotypical child, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, totally. He, he completely lacks the ability to hide any amount of emotion, no matter how much or what kind. He seems, uh, just, he, he acts on pure instinct, impulsively, with no thought for his
3: actions. Mm-hmm.
0: Even if, take Okay, so take the way he moves, the way that Jordan describes his movement at this exact scene at al when Savannah gestures for Kuladina to take the stage, and Jordan describes him as scrambling onto the ledge, yeah. his face an angry red, you know. Uh, I just thought, yeah, okay, so this guy is very childish, he's, he's not very... Um, indicative, or he's not very just like representative of the IWEAL culture and their, and their whole kind of grave formality and everything. Right. Um, but I did want to ask something specifically about uh, Culloden in this scene, and this is when he bared his arms and he actually showed the double dragons. Right. Did you, were you, on your first read through, especially Peter, since I've got you here, were you surprised when you saw those?
2: I mean, right at first. I think I was a little surprised, but to me, it pretty quickly became evident that he was easy for the Forsaken to use as a pawn. But I, I, yeah, I don't know if it was so much surprise as it was like, oh god, here we go. Here we go? Yeah. It's more of an annoyance. Yeah. Than I, I, I was definitely aggrieved. Like, it was obvious that it was going to cause a lot of chaos.
1: So, I honestly don't remember. It's been See, that's a, like I've read this book the most. I, I don't think I've read any book on earth more than I've read *The Shadow Rising*. I've read this book probably forty or forty-five times, and the first time I read this was eighteen years ago. <laughs> like, I a lot of my. First impressions of this book are long lost to the winds of time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, I, but I that said, said that. that said, I think my my vague impression of it is that I was not surprised, and I think it was because they were told Savannah and the Shadow arrived before dawn. And yep. reading that the first time, I was like. Oh, I see where this is going.
0: That they arrived at dawn, but I think it was one of I think it was one of the clan chiefs that said. I think it might have been actually Han who said. For some reason, they even traveled through the night.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was like
0: uh, like, uh, I see.
1: Yeah, I I think that tipped me off, and so it felt more like an inevitability.
3: Because you know.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I I think he had.
3: I think he had the dragons for a while, too, because isn't there a scene earlier when he, yeah. like, clutches his forearms yes. as if he's about to sh- reveal them? Yeah, there...
1: It's specifically... Uh, there's one scene where uh, Asmodean, uh Jason Nathiel, goes off with Kooladin while they're traveling to Cold Rock's Hold. And then it's only after that that Kooladin and the Shadow break off. He he oh got the dragons God, on the... Uh, um, on the trip to Cold Rocks.
0: I can't believe I didn't notice that. I've read this book so many times and I didn't notice that. Yeah. I'm going to be looking out for that from now on. But the, the whole reason I asked Drew is because when I wrote down this point, when I thought to ask this question, I said, the only reason I ask is because I don't actually remember if I was surprised <laughs> yeah. or not. I was about 12 years old, 13 years old when I read this book for the first time. I I get the impression that I wasn't, Surprised, but I don't know why. Because I definitely, at that age, would not have picked up on that very, very subtle hint of them having traveled through the night. Mm-hmm. I like, I definitely would not have picked up on that back then. But I don't specifically recall being surprised, and I cannot figure out why.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. Uh, uh, Aunt Leary to cool it in, though. Uh, just want to point out we we've now met Savannah, and we uh. Have. Ugh. Like talk yeah, about okay. my all-time least favorite Wheel of Time characters. Savannah is near the top of that list, if not at the wow. top. Wow! So, so
0: um, when you say your your least favorite Wheel of Time character, do you mean you hate her as a person, yes. or you just hate how she was written?
1: <laughs> I hate her as a
0: person. So she was written well. You be, might be willing to say it's just yeah. a, a, a despicable person. Yeah, I, I
1: don't. I don't know okay. if I. I would say outright that there were any characters Robert Jordan wrote poorly. He's a great cool. writer of characters. Yeah. Uh and I think it just speaks to his talent that he can write a character Oh,
0: that's a really good idea whom I hate so much. <laughs> with our own eventually to say sometime our own most despised characters in this series.
1: Oh yeah, that that'll be something to oh, do course. maybe for like a Wheel of Time recap episode. Hadden
0: Fane is just gonna be at the top of everybody's list, right? No. Like?
1: No, he he probably won't be on <laughs> mine. He's really interesting. Wow, really? Yeah. Uh but it- uh Jumping away from that topic, because uh, here there be spoilers. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with Savannah, though, I I just think it's incredible how Robert Jordan managed to tell you everything you need to know about her in like three pages. You know. Yeah. It, yeah.
0: <laughs> Good point.
1: Where where she's contemptible, like Kuladin is contemptible, but in very different ways. Like, Cooladin is a toddler, whereas yeah. Savanna is just vain, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Great combo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perfect. Okay, yeah. Match made in hell. I want to just touch really quickly on, like, a small bit of lore. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to do much of a deep dive on this because I don't want to spoil things for Peter. Uh, but just okay. this one thing... I addressed it back in, I think, our second Eye of the World episode, and I'll touch on it again here with the, the black cables that Rand cuts oh, yeah, on Asmodean. Okay. Um, they, uh, they are his protection uh, from the taint and his connection to the Dark One. The black cord that Balzaman had back at the end of Eye of the World was not the same thing. That was his connection to the true power. So the There are only a couple of points where, where these like cords and cables show up and and it's just important to differentiate them because Rand in Eye the World does not separate Baalzimon, Ishamael, from the Dark One's protection. He only does that at the end of the Dragon Reborn just before he kills him.
0: No, so I would I would ask, what the difference is then between the true source, uh, the true source, the true power, and the dark one? Is the true power not just the essence of the dark one? Is it not the same thing?
1: So uh, I don't want to go too much into this for fear of spoilers, but uh, the oh, true power is the yeah. essence of the dark one. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. Good point. Uh. So I guess going forward with my uh, with some just miscellaneous uh, impressions and questions for Drew. Actually, I'll see what I have uh, as a question for Drew uh, before we go. Oh, okay. Perfect. Found one. So Iginen. Uh, she's we see in this volume she's learned that the Suldam can be controlled by the Adam. yes right like she considers the scale of ramifications that has for the shanchan Empire as a whole my question is we know that the girls in shanchan who are born with the spark are found and made into Damane. but yes. how do they find Suldam without also making them
1: Damane? oh man uh I'm trying to remember because this was this was a long time fandom argument and i'm trying to remember what the or if we even got a conclusive answer from team jordan okay, so on at it at least cuz there there is not much question. uh detail around um uh the testing itself in Sean uh there there are a couple of points where characters make reference of like oh i remember when i was younger and the Dom came through and all the girls would take turns trying the bracelet on to see if they could you know do whatever but that to me is like (sighs) the only way it makes sense to me is if they have a specific testing for the spark they find the spark and then on each girl's neck. And yeah, and then, the then you get collared, one. and then they then test for sueldom after that by having any remaining girls put the bracelet on. You know, and oh, so okay. so they wouldn't be picked up because they don't have the spark, but they would be able to use because if they tested for sueldom first, all the sparker girls would also be able to use the bracelet. Yeah. So...
0: Yeah. Okay. I can see that being uh, a possible... De- de- a likely way that, that that could happen. Yeah. Um. Okay. Um. My next point, I'm going to get a little nitpicky, I will admit. Ooh. I do this on occasion. And I will say for the most part, I understand I'm reading epic fantasy... I can suspend disbelief (laughs) about the One Power, the Trollocs, the Murdral, everything. But there's one thing I'm going to still complain about. It's just something I I find hard not to notice. And because of that, it's continuously kind of bringing me out of the narrative. Um, With a lot of the suspension and disbelief, particularly with my earlier examples, these are all possible because of magical reasons. Perrin, on the other hand... Has no apparent magical reason for being able to defy basic physics. <laughs> I'm talking, of course, about Perrin doing battle with a blacksmith's hammer. It's just not... It, it can't be done. He's not strong enough to fight with a blacksmith's hammer because nobody is. All right? like, that's just epic fantasy nonsense. I, we, we see him taking on Murdraw for Christ's sake. They're described as, as wielding their blades like lightning... Like, like the flicking of the tongue of a viper. We see them killing dozens of soldiers at a time. I don't care how shredded Perrin is, nobody can move four pounds of steel around quickly enough to take on a Merdral. <laughs> and even if he could, even, even if he could, the sheer momentum from having to stop and redirect it would tear his arm from its socket yeah. after like three strikes.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, unrealistic stuff with Perrin's strength in these books. And this is part of why, like, you know, without going way off the deep end here, uh, I kind of roll my eyes a lot when I see all these people complaining about the casting of Marcus Rutherford as Perrin, where they're like, oh, yep. he needs to put on so much more weight. <laughs> I'm like, Perrin is, he can. is, like, I'm sure impossibly he can. big and strong in the books. Like, yeah, the, but okay, Marcus Rutherford is already built like a linebacker. Like, he's plenty big enough. There, He looks like he could be a, a blacksmith in real life.
0: Like, but during our episodes on the Dragon Reborn, you and Craig were arguing against me when I said there's no way Perrin could just pick up a chair and break it like that. He's not oh, that no, strong. No, no, no. It's like like matchsticks. And you were like, "Of course he could. Adrenaline could do a whole lot of crazy." Well, I things. I
1: didn't say that, did I? Didn't you?
0: I don't think I'm I, did. Sure I did. I always
1: was like annoyed by that scene. Like, mm.
0: but like maybe back,
1: the only way that scene makes sense to me is if it was like a really shoddily made chair. But yeah, but yeah, and, and
0: Before anybody really calls me out on my experience in this matter, guess what? I'm a welder fabricator, okay? (laughs) I spend 50 to 60 hours a week working with hot metal, bending hot metal, and yes, using a steel mallet several times a day, okay? I'm 205 pounds, and trust me, the mere mere act of swinging a four-pound hammer like that steel hammer with any force, it throws you off balance a bit. This would be no different if he took Bornhold's sword, for example, and just bent it into a pretzel with his bare hands and handed it back. Like when you don't provide a magical answer for feats like this, you have to leave it to the assumption that well, this guy is just really strong. And it only holds up to a certain point. And, yeah. and Perrin is past that point. For me, he's past that point at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's
1: a that's a fair
0: sorry. nitpick. Uh, okay, I uh, just want to give Jared and and Peter a chance to jump in on that. Do you find that
1: unfair at all?
3: No. It's fair. <laughs> I can look past it though. Yeah. Sweet.
1: Um, okay. I uh, I want to I want to get before we dive into like you know our three favorite scenes and stuff. I want to yeah. talk to Peter here, and I want to get some of Peter's predictions for where he thinks this series is going.
2: Oh, good grief! Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. We're doing that now. Um. Well, we talked about the dark friends social, and I I think the Forsaken are going to have to have a social at some point.
1: <laughs> I think that's a. That's a fair expectation.
2: And then I think... gosh, Asmodian's going to get murdered and there's going to be a big mystery behind it. <laughs> Saving, like Knife of Dreams. Oh,
1: gee, uh, how does he that? Do and, and, like, like, I, I definitely oh, hasn't heard anything about <laughs> the series before this. <laughs> I
2: don't know, maybe another Forsaken kills him, like Eeny Meeny Mindy Grandall. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> okay, bleep. Let's, okay, let's get, to, stop now. let's get to the things that haven't been spoiled <laughs> over my... Yeah, um, I'm kind of a unique person in that I've heard people talking about Wheel of Time for years before I ever even picked up a book. But there's a, there is a lot that I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. Um, yeah. I'll start with the obvious prediction. Um, Moradin is gonna get out. It's only a matter of time. He's gonna get out. Uh, the what what is it? Adam for men or the... Um, Chains for Rand. The domination band. Yeah, the domination. Saw. Yeah, the yeah. domination band. I don't think that's gonna stay at the bottom of the sea the whole series, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh. One smaller thing that I very well could be wrong about is I think at at some point, for whatever reason, Egwene's gonna want Rand back. Hmm. Um okay. Yeah. Let's see. What uh, what else can I throw out there? I I want to make a a prediction about the Slayer Lord Luke thing, but to to be oh. totally honest with you, I I don't know where that's going. Okay. Um Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, cool. I I
1: think I think there are there's some fun predictions in there. Yeah. I, yeah I, uh, I heard a couple. <laughs> I got a crack out of Asmodean, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eeny meeny miney, grain doll. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: I like that. I haven't heard that one yet. Oh. Uh, before
0: we continue, there's a couple discrepancies I wanted to bring that I think I found in the, well, the one that I know that I found in this oh. book. Uh, like between the audiobook and the text. Something that's changed.
1: Uh, I know of at least one thing that's changed, so I'm curious if it's the same okay, for Okay, so you. which one do you know of? It might uh, be the same exact Zora. one. Avendazora. No! Actually, what is this one? Uh, in the original text, and I assume in the audiobook, uh, Avendazora during, uh, Rand's fight with Asmodian is only, like, slightly damaged, like, broken branches, but then... Yeah,
0: it's a single broken branch.
1: Yeah, and then, um... Early in the fires of heaven, it's described as burnt, and so oh, he went back and changed I the text, that. and and now, uh, in the text, Avendazora goes up like a torch.
3: Holy crap! Yeah, it goes up like a torch in the ebook. Yeah.
0: Damn. Well, now wow. I'm really curious okay, what this I other one is.
3: One.
0: This other one is in chapter 47. I highlighted this specifically in the audiobook. It's, it's uh, from
1: Swan Sanchez's point of view. I think it's. The oh truth my gosh, of the we didn't talk about the tower breaking. Oh, mm, how yeah, did I completely didn't. forget about that? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll have plenty more time to talk about that <laughs> on oh, future we episodes. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so in chapter 47, the, the truth of the viewing, I think it's called. Yep. Um, Swan Sanchez is looking at a small message that she had received from Warren. And it's really frustrating her as it being one of the only messages she's received from Warain. In the ebook, and I assume the actual text, it says from Warain, it's only one single sentence The shepherd holds the sword. In the audiobook, that sentence reads The shepherd holds the stone.
1: Weird. Hmm. So in my book here, there are two sentences, and it is The sling has been used. The sling has
0: been used. I remember reading that now in the book sword. now. I remember reading that. It's in my my, uh, my hardcover. Not my hardcover. My physical copy. It's over there on the shelf. The sling has been used. I, I didn't remember that line until you actually said you remembered to in that sentence. Why do they keep changing these?
1: Yeah, I would be very curious. I mean, I like the, the shepherd holds the sword much more than the shepherd holds the stone.
0: You know what, That both sentences might be in the audiobook, but I know for a fact, because I went through and listened right before we started this episode, I had the audiobook in front of me, and I listened to, sorry, the audiobook, the uh, the ebook in front of me, and I listened to the audiobook in time, minutes before we went live, and it's absolutely true. The e-book says, Shepherd holds the sword, and the audiobook says, Shepherd holds the stone. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And my second discrepancy, this is just a small one, I guess it's also a question for Drew. Um, When In that same scene, Elida brings Swan out of her study and she sees her warder, Ulrich, dead on the floor. Um, She didn't feel that happen?
1: So, um, Robert Jordan has addressed this. Let me pull up the interview quote very quickly for you. Cool.
0: It's good. It's reassuring to know that I'm asking questions that other people have asked.
1: So, Robert Jordan said, A lot of people have asked questions about Ulrich's death. I should have made matters plainer. As I envisioned it, Ulrich, having sensed Swan's extreme shock, came running to her and arrived just in time to be stabbed, just before Swan was taken into the anteroom. She should Ah. have sensed the knife going in, but that was masked by her own shock. When she sees him lying there, he is dying, though not yet dead. As I said, I should have made it plainer.
0: Oh, my God. Okay, I fully accept that. I can see that being the thing because he was bleeding at that moment, described as, as I think, still bleeding, even yeah. though he wasn't moving. Yeah, That's a good way to... Yeah. Okay, fully accepted.
1: Cool. Uh, yeah. Three favorite scenes? Oh, well, let's do three favorite scenes. Heck yes. Jared, kick it off.
3: Uh, let's see. Golden Eyes, obviously, for me. Obviously, yep. Obviously. Uh, let's see, I think... So, Nineveh vs. Mogadian was into the palace? Uh, into... Mm, what was
1: that? I, I think it happens at the beginning of Into the Deep.
3: Into the Deep? Okay. I mean, those two chapters uh, are back-to-back, so... And then Rand and Osmodian and Rodian. Yeah.
2: That's yeah. fair.
3: So you- one kind of... I guess uh, one other scene I would mention is when Min and Swan are escaping the tower.
1: Oh. Oh. When they... When
3: they, and they
0: they're run in with Gawain?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Mm. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll go next? Yeah. Okay, so I am actually very much in agreement with Jared on two of those. Um, the entire GoldenEye sequence from the beginning with Perrin's letter to Fael, which, by the way, one of the most beautiful goodbyes ever written in epic fantasy. Like... I can't. It's just. It's so amazing. Um, the sense of unity before the Trollocs arrived, the actual attack, the arrival of the Devon Riders, forget the expulsion of the White Cloaks afterwards, so perfect. And I, I wanted to take a second to draw back and just um, reiterate uh, something that I mentioned previously. I want to say this book in this scene proves that it's every bit as much Perrin's book as it is Rand's book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, what an amazing sequence that entire thing was beginning to end so that was my first of my three favorite scenes um, my second was Loyal returning to Emmons Field carrying Gaul oh okay you know, everybody shouting his name oh, I was just I was so happy for him in that moment that he got that kind of sense of everybody cheering for him everybody cheering him on because he feels like such an outcast among the gear just again I'll say what I said before what a nice moment so bloody wholesome right and my third favorite was the was another one that Jared had mentioned Rand and Asmodian with a Shoidin What a battle that was. Nice. Okay. It was Which, awesome. By the
3: way, thank God Lanford didn't find the other one. Oh, yeah. no, yeah. right. <laughs> you
0: can see her looking
1: for it, too. Uh, uh, Peter, what about you?
2: All right, so one that I might add is uh, I, I want to piggyback on the expulsion of the White Cloaks because I also just remember the way I felt with their, um, just extreme hypocrisy and cowardice when they refuse to fight for Iman's field, mm-hmm. and just how pissed I was, and so when, when they get expelled, I'm just like, yeah! That was, uh, that was definitely up there for me, and then, the other two are, are obvious, I mean, Al Dahl and the, uh, the fight in the rain, um, the yeah. ruckus with the Aiel when, uh, two men show their the dragons on their arms and then i i already mentioned my favorite quote of rand althor is Kara and the light have, help us all but like the chieftains coming forward yeah. like like that was that was part of uh j- just the vindication that goes with all the chieftains coming forward to back rand and that moment was amazing and then the the other one if you've been paying attention to the podcasts you know me i like nineave i loved the scene with her and, and Mogedian that was that was amazing and I, yeah um, when Mogedian starts dropping knowledge about the Age of Legends because that's her final defense like she has no power left to throw at nine Aves, so she's going with whatever she can and
3: mm-hmm.
2: those yeah, would be yeah. my three I suppose sweet, nice yeah. so I'm, uh,
1: before I do mine I just want to point out, I'm very interested in the fact that None of the four of us has the Roydian history of the Aiel sequence in our top scenes.
0: Yeah, I, I just I, I did think of one uh, while Peter was talking there that I thought as an honorable mention. It was not the Roydian sequence, but I wanted to, to, to bring up that moment where uh, there is the attack at uh, uh, I think it was Cold Rock's hold yeah the mm. stand when Rand himself was the one to pick up. The stick and and bang the gong.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, she in she cold rocks, him, Yeah, it was cold rocks. Oh, yeah. it was. There's just the imagery of that scene where after Rand and Avienda kind of save each other, he picks up that one and he just starts banging on the gong. It was such a badass moment. I just, I loved it. That's where Rand proved himself more than any other time in this book, I think, of, mm-hmm. of like, his worthiness of the Aiel. It was just, it was so awesome. Sorry. Uh, go ahead, Drew.
1: So, yeah, my number three scene is uh, essentially al dahl from the point when the spears are singing and pouring down the slope all the way up to Ran, making it rain. You know, uh, it's just that whole sequence is breakneck it's it is so tense it's so well crafted brilliant stuff my second scene actually is hard heads it is wow uh from part 1 it it is that scene where Elaine expresses her feelings to Rand for the first time and because it it's such a as we talked about, it's such a moment of, like, refreshing innocence for these characters who are thrust into roles way over their heads with so much responsibility on their shoulders that it's nice that they get a moment to just be teenagers.
0: Yeah. When she picks up the feathers and keeps them because yeah. he had oh, wanted and, them to be a flower. And there's...
1: Uh. Yeah, uh... I'll, I'll revisit that scene a few books down the road too because there's yeah, another yeah there's another aspect to it that I, I can't talk about with Peter here but um, but my favorite scene in this book and this is one of my probably top five favorite scenes in the entire series is the stone stands oh how did I forget about that scene I mean Rand uh, Everything from from when Rand walks out of his apartments into a scene of madness where there's like dead defenders everywhere and there's a murder and Rand's just like try me and he just wrecks the fade like oh
2: uh,
1: and then and then leading up to Rand as I as I've mentioned a couple of times it's like one of my favorite weaves and I wish we got to see it used again later on is the like shadow spawn seeking lightning tornado yeah. like. So cool. And then uh yeah. and then we get Rand in all of his glory there coming up against the ceiling of what he can do and yeah. and discovering that you know, he he can't just treat every situation like he has a hammer and it's a nail to be driven in and he fails to resurrect the young girl yeah thank you for bringing that up so
0: much because that was something I'd forgotten to talk about I had written to talk about for part one I think and totally forgot until now in that scene the stone stands Randolph Thor proved himself to be one of the most badass epic fantasy characters of all time
2: (laughs) of all time I'll be honest I thought we were doing top three scenes from this part of the book but oh yeah Yeah, yeah. same same (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, my the, favorite the three. I, I think all came it. in the last part. Yeah, the, I think my favorite three were all in the last third. Yeah.
1: The way we've been doing it is uh, like top three scenes for the whole book. At, That's fair. At the end of our, because we didn't do top three scenes for part two or part sure. one. Um But yeah, uh, the, so those are my top three. Uh, b- but yeah. before we go into the final draft, does anybody have any kind of final thoughts you want to jump in with?
0: One question I had to ask you
1: um, regarding something that happened in Rand's
0: dreams. Oh. Uh, He meets Lanfear in his dreams, Mm -hmm. and um, there's a figure that showed up in Rand's dream who berates Lanfear for playing around with Rand in the pool. I always thought that was Asmodian, and it did confuse me. Before you correct me, Drew, it did confuse me because she seems to be, like, contemptuous of Asmodian at the end of the book, though perhaps I, I guess I kind of passed that off as, you know, Asmodian's totally exhausted. He's no threat. But then the figure fen- uh, mentions something about playing puppeteer to a queen or controlling the strings of a queen and I was like, "Oh, hello Ravine."
1: Yeah.
0: But my my question is, uh well first off, Lanfear actually asks him how or she she she, te- she says to him, "Had I not hauled you out of your hole, you would still be hiding waiting to snatch a few scraps." What is she talking about? Okay. Ravine like, Ravin was in a hole? He, so, could she be talking so no. about the boar?
1: It, that is Asmodean. That is Asmodean. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, and okay. and that because was my- once again like another piece of my now debunked theory about Caldwin uh, that he was just like hiding in this little Podunk town in Kyrian, and Lanfear was like, "No, you're gonna help me." But yeah, she she basically like commandeered Asmodian into helping her on her little IUL waste quest, and yeah. then he piggybacked off that when he realized, "Oh wait a second, there's a Chulodon call access key out here." Oh man, here's my chance. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Because where, where where I went forward with that, the, like what I extrapolated from that, I was thinking was she okay? So if this is Ravine, then like Ravine was in the hole. Could she be talking about the boar? And no, I realized yeah. that sounds ridiculous. But when you consider that she was the person who actually opened it in the first place, I thought, oh, maybe it's not well, that he... ridiculous. But then later, at Al you know when Pandemonium explodes and Rand flees to stop Asmodium, uh, she tells him right before he does, "I knew he would give himself away coming into your dreams." Yeah. And Rand was already talking about Asmodium in that yeah. in that moment, so I was like, "Oh, okay, okay." So I guess there's a little bit of a theory debunked. Yeah, but
1: yeah, that was definitely yeah. Asmodium.
0: So that's all, that's all I have to talk about, and that's everything I have to say about the Shadow Rising Part Three.
3: Uh, Jared, Peter. I would just say in general. I mean, if the first three books got me interested in The Wheel of Time, this one, I would say, got me addicted. Nice. I haven't known many people who have read The Wheel of Time that read through Shadow Rising and then just said, that's it. Yeah. yeah
2: I do know a few totally people agree. who have read Beyond Shadow Rising, but not the whole series. But I, know I, I I don't think I know anyone other than me who has stopped after The Shadow Rising, and I haven't stopped stopped, I just haven't picked up the fifth book yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The... I have a
0: cousin who is one day older than me who made it to book six, and then he stopped. That's madness.
1: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's in, like, the middle of the best stretch of the series. All right? Um, yeah. But, so... I only have one kind of final thing to talk about and that is just to glow about the quality of this book. If you if you were to sit me down and, you know, like lock me in a room until I list out my like 10 favorite books of all time, this is number 1. Holy. Like it's there there's definitely a little bit of nostalgia coming into play there. Uh, I don't think it's the best written book I've ever read, but it is very well written. Uh, But it is just so good. There is so much packed into this. So many brilliant ideas Robert Jordan came up with and executed on the page. It's just... Like I said, I have not read any other book on this earth more than I've read The Shadow Rising. I'm on my fourth copy of this book, because I've read them into pieces. Like, it's... It is simply my favorite book of all time, so... Sorry, it's all downhill wow. from here, guys. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but stay tuned.
0: <laughs> well, I yeah, think we'll see my, what happens
1: when we get to, is... like, uh, the back half of the Stormlight Archive about. or something like that, but...
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so much more to discuss with Sanderson, too. In the yeah, future. yeah. Oh,
1: uh, but yeah, so... On that note, though, shall we head into the final draft? Heck yes! Uh, Rob, do you want to kick us off? Sure.
0: So, I am drinking another IPA today from Market Brewing Company. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they're based, but I'm pretty sure it's somewhat local, so it'll be in Ontario somewhere. This is an IPA. It's very, very, very hazy, very unfiltered, lots of sediment, 7% ABV, though, so it's nice and strong. Uh, this is called, it's got a big orange uh, can here. Oh, sorry, before I tell you what the name is, I was thinking about Loyal when I bought this okay. one and how just how much of a big old teddy bear he is. <laughs> and I bought this one. This one here is called Bear Hug. Nice. <laughs> I like it. And it was awesome. I mean, I've had two of them in this episode, and I'm slurring my words <laughs> like a
1: motherfucker. <laughs> so
0: you, that, is, that speaks to its strength right there. So All right. Yeah, you guys take it away, man.
1: Uh, Jared. Do you have anything today?
3: I have the same thing that I had in part one, which is Hop Valley Citrus Mistress. Ooh. Citrus Mistress. It's a great name. Uh, pale Ale, Grapefruit. Oh, yeah.
1: Very nice. It's good. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So, what I am drinking is uh, a nut brown ale from Crow Hop Brewing Company in Loveland, Colorado. It's a. Uh, Not as nutty as you would expect for a nut brown ale. It's actually very creamy, very smooth. Um, A little like fuller bodied than I expected from a a brown ale. It's almost like more like a porter, but not as roasty. Um, Mm. But this is uh, my ode to Randall Thor. It is called Big Water. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, Uh, Nice. Big Water? Big Water. Nice. Because Rand nice. made it rain. I,
0: I like it. Yeah, he did make it rain. He and made a lake.
1: It and made a lake. That's what I thought you were what I
0: thought
2: you were uh, referencing there. The lake at Roydian. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So. Nice. And Peter's been uh drinking the same thing as right, I am. Right. Right.
2: I didn't bring a beer myself this time. I'm sorry. That's good though. Oh, That's good yeah. enough for two. Oh, uh, well you'll never be like invited it. back. Okay. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why?! I, oh I, man, I, if, if we had that rule
1: in place, we would have, like, no guests ever. <laughs> Damn.
2: <laughs> I drank I a can't. Mountain Dew earlier today. It reminded me of the Mountains of Mist. I don't know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> B.S. my way through is my themed Is Bork, beer ever themed
3: beer streak ever going to be broken? I'm keeping mm, up I'm, with it. I don't it. know. I, I mean,
0: I I think other people have had better choices than him. Namely, yours on episode 16. Uh, with Skyward? Yeah, Jared, Jared Skyward. beat me with Skyward. That
1: was awesome. Heck I yes. that. But yeah, I I will say I already have been uh, planning ahead, and I have beers for several of the later Wheel of Time books stowed away in my fridge that are gonna be very good. So
0: I don't know. I had life in the clouds for Roydeon. That was a good I had one. saint of circumstance for the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, yeah man, I'm bringing it lately too. We'll yeah. see. I'm yeah, you've Drew been on future.
1: a little bit of a streak yourself. For a while you were just Heck doing yes. like uh, whiskey or Captain Morgan or something, but you've yeah. been finding some good beers oh, to bring I'm in.
0: Probably gonna do a lot more of that in the future, let me
1: tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that uh that's gonna be a wrap for episode thirty six, covering uh yeah. the last part of the Shadow Rising. Uh next up we're gonna be reading through the end of chapter sixteen of the Fires of Heaven, book five and uh, yeah, so we're, we're sticking with the Wheel of Time, we're going to be cruising right through and in case uh, that chapter number isn't clear enough we will once again be doing three episodes for The Fires of Heaven and we'll have some uh, some new guests well, some returning guests uh, back on for those episodes so we're definitely looking forward to that and you know, as always, if you're appreciating our content, if you want to support us help us pay for our hosting and, and pay for Pat and Danny's uh hard work that they put in here. Um and Jared is working on a website for us as well. You know, we we want to be, be able to pay oh, yes. these people the money they're worth. And right now this is all coming out of our pocket, so any any kind of support on Patreon would help us out a ton. It's patreon.com slash Inking Out Loud.
0: For Jared, Danny and Pat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co host, Rob Santos. Yeah, And uh what was it? Galactic Emperor Jared Livingston? I don't know how to Galactic about
0: Emperor that. Jared Livingston! I'm, Sorry. I'm His eminence, I'm Jared Livingston. Up. I don't know how I'm going to talk that one on the next
1: episode. Um, I'm sure you'll think of something. And and our esteemed meteorologist, Peter Goble.
2: Why, thank you. I thought my salutation following the Galactic Emperor was going to be weak, but <laughs> I, I, I can deal yeah, with that. A, this but... is a
0: running joke that we've had with Jared for <laughs> a while. God, i had um, to keep it going, although I don't know how to raise, it, raise the bar for you. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been fun, and I can't wait to uh, see how wrong I am about the future of the Wheel of Time.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so it's going to be great, and, and I'm sure we'll have you back on for some future episodes. Yeah. So. Yes! Uh, it, as always, thanks for, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.
3: See you guys. Bye, everybody.